Now, our never-ending pop culture road trip takes us from New York to a small paper company in Scranton, Pennsylvania. We're like friends. I am Chandler and Joey, and Dwight is Kramer. The Pop Six takes a look at one of the most celebrated comedies of the century, The Office. Put my stuff in Jello again. I like waking up to the smell of bacon. Sue me. Boy, have you lost your mind? Cause I'll help you find it. Ryan started the fire. I'm in love with you. What? What you want? A cookie? You always left me satisfied and smiling. Welcome in, folks. Pop six. Uh, we're not talking about friends. We've been doing that for a month, and it came to a close. And this coming Monday, uh, we're gonna go. I believe the terminology from Brad Willis was wreck ass in Murfreesboro at a friend's trivia contest that's taking place. So that's going to be fun. It's going to be Brad. It's going to be me. It's going to be my girlfriend and his sister. And if you were thinking about attending, don't. Unless you're just there for spectator purposes. Like this is going to be Zion Williamson kind of stuff. But it's going to be like Duke playing against Towson State is what it's going to be like on Monday night. Absolutely ridiculous. We had so much fun and we had... Look, the number of listens kind of blew us away uh, for all four of those of four of, of those episodes. A lot more people wanted to hear about friends that may not want to tell people they watched Friends. You need to get over yourselves. One of the more decorated comedies we've ever had. Guess what? We're going from one decorated comedy to another one, one that was game changing. And since it came around, so many things tried to imitate it unsuccessfully. To another show that was game changing, and I do think there were some shows that were able to sort of capture it in certain regards but it came about because Ricky Gervais and Stephen Merchant were so successful with with what they did in 2001 with a UK version of the same series that only had 12 total episodes it had two six episode seasons because British people are weird I guess because usually there's like four or five episodes and they call that a series and that means season that's just kind of how it's done over there a lot shorter seasons at least back in the day not so much with The Office. It goes nine seasons in the U.S. premieres on March the 24th, 2005 with an abbreviated first season that at the time looked like it might be a wrap, like it might be all for The Office. And then they made one key change that results in us sitting behind the microphones on a sports radio station spending the next four weeks talking about it. It's not just me. I am Jason Martin, of course. Editor-in-chief of the Big Six Blog, 1045thezone.com slash Big Six Blog. If you want to follow my pop culture writings there, used to be at Outkick the Coverage and the host of Outkick the Culture. Midday 180 producer, David Reed, Squared Circle Radio host, one of the best radio voices in town. He is going to be with us for this journey. Hopefully, we're going to get his wife in here at some point because I know how big a fan she is of The Office. Rep Brian, Titans Radio executive producer. This is his room that we're in doing this, so that's good. I don't have to actually schedule time because he's actually going to be in here. That's going to help us out. Gentlemen, this is going to be fun. I know you guys love The Office, and when we were doing the Friends thing right off the start, you actually came up to me right and said, if you do The Office, man, I'd love to be a part of that. As soon as you said I said, well, we're going to do that one next, and here we are. And just dropping that tweet last week saying, putting up the Michael Scott photo, a lot of response. A whole lot of people are intrigued by what we're going to do over the next month, and we may have some special guests and – May even have a couple of guests from the show. I'm working on it. So there's going to be some cool things going on. Nice. So welcome. 
The Office. Why did you want to talk about The Office? It's one of my favorite shows in history. I mean, it's a it's a regular staple in our household. My wife and my daughter, when there's nothing else on or nothing we really want to watch, that's our go-to. And uh, my daughter is, I mean, she can give you episode, you know, names, uh, what season it was in. I mean, just by hearing the first couple of lines of dialogue in each episode, she's that good. And uh, it's just funny. I, it's a, it, it's mindless humor. It's my kind of humor. I don't have to think about anything. It's a good way to decompress. Um, it's just good. Can't help it. I've often said if it's mindless, it's for red. <laughs> yes. Um, this is uh, I. This is my my confession off the bat. I never saw The Office until three years ago. That was the first time that I saw it. When I started dating my wife, Lindsay, uh, she was a huge fan of it. I had never seen it. The only thing that I had known of it prior, I had heard about it, heard people talk about it back in the day when it's actually running. But the only thing that I had known about it really prior to that point uh, was when I used to share an office with Jonathan Hutton back at the old building, back at the old days. He was asking me if I watched it and told me I should watch it because this Jennifer Fisher woman, is uh, she's pretty hot. Yeah, I'm a big fan. Yeah. <laughs> but that was not enough to compel me to watch it when it's actually airing live. So, I have, ever since three years ago, I have watched the entire series every year. Uh, just concluded. Well, I say the entire series. The last two times that we've tried to watch it all the way through, Lindsay will not watch the last episode because she still gets emotional watching the last episode of The Office. Okay. So we've watched every. We watched it three times through, except the last episodes the last two years. Scott's tots. It's the greatest. It's the greatest thing ever. No, Ooh. it's really not. No. <laughs> It's almost impossible to watch is what it is. So we're going to go through it. We will talk about Robert California, and we will talk about Idris Elba, and we'll talk about Catherine Tate and all of the things that happen later in the show. We're going to do this similar to the way we did with Friends, where we go through the first couple of seasons and do kind of an overall thought on the characters and all of those things this week and then into a couple of seasons next week, a couple of seasons a week after, and then we'll get to the finish and then we'll do exactly what we did with friends. We will end it with a character draft, 15 rounds, where we draft our character teams. May not be able to do 15 with three people, but we'll do 10 rounds, and then we'll determine who did the best job. Brad told me I won the friends draft with the chicken, the duck pick, which is the last pick in that draft. So it will be a lot of fun. There's, a, I think it's a lot more fun with The Office, perhaps, because there were so many sideline characters that had a lot of screen time that you would have to actually factor in after the first couple that I think would be pretty obvious. But did you guys watch the UK show, or have you watched the UK show now? Multiple times. And you like it, I assume? Oh, God, yes. Absolutely. I mean, that was more, that was a different show than what the U.S. office became, certainly. British, one thing I read was that British humor was, it was fine to be much more biting and much meaner. So Ricky Gervais's character was, well, he was a bumbling fool, but he was also kind of a jerk, like oh, a, a serious jerk. When Michael Scott was a jerk in the first season of The Office, it didn't work. It didn't work for the American audience. They did a focus group, and I've mentioned this before, and I've written this before. They did a focus group after the first season of The Office and said, what do you think of this show? And the focus group came back and said, Michael Scott is mean. We don't like him. And... So what they did was, if you watch at the end of season one or all of season one and in season two, Michael Scott's hair changes from being totally slicked back and a very boss-looking character who was playing really bad jokes on Pam about getting her fired and <laughs> all of those things and just the shut, 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 
<laughs> just like so much obnoxious stuff. He became a complete bumbling idiot instead. He went from being kind of a boss that was still like, hey, well, why don't I have this in my office, Pam? It needs to be organized to the guy that didn't even care about how good he was at his job because he was too busy trying to do everything else. He still, I think, had tenets of it in the first season of a guy that wanted to be liked and tried to be liked but was so blind to how unlikable he was as a character. But it was Steve Carell, to me, his shift between season one and season two, which is why we're here at all. Because if he had been the character he was in season one, it would not have lasted. The character in season two became someone you actually rooted for increasingly as the show went along. I haven't watched the UK series, and I keep going back and forth on whether or not I should watch it or not because I, I don't want it to... I'm that kind of person that would let it taint my view of The Office if I didn't like it. But I don't think there's any reason for me not to like it because uh, an idiot abroad is one of my favorite television yeah. shows of all Pilkington. time. Yeah, I, I've sure. always wanted if Ricky if Ricky Gervais is listening to this and I'm sure he is because oh, no question. <laughs> this is going to be this is going to tear up the podcast charts. Yes. Uh I would like to be the American idiot abroad because I think me and Carl have a lot in common. Uh, we're very both very set in our ways. We know what's stupid and what's not stupid, what we like and what we don't like. So that being said, I don't think there's any reason I wouldn't necessarily like the UK version. I just haven't gotten around to it because every year, it, I mean, it's coming come up on the time where I should start for 2019, start watching The Office all over again. So the characters, Carell was perfectly cast, especially once they realized what Carell was better at doing. He was fine. He was good in the first season. I watched it actually just last night. I went back and, and went through it, at least until my power went out in the middle of the night and I had to stop. And I was like, okay, I guess I should go to sleep now. <laughs> but... Just the way that the characters were designed early, there was a lot more malicious intent behind them. It wasn't as much fun to watch. It's not that the humor wasn't there. Some of the humor was just downright hilarious. Like one of the great lines, I think, in the history of the series is in Diversity Day. Actually, there are a couple of them in Diversity Day. But the whole deal about uh, stereotypes and Pam not wanting to do it with Dwight, and then finally he's got Asian written on his head. <laughs> and she's just like, you guys are known for your food. Outback Steakhouse, I'm Australian. Like, that Australian, that kind of mate. stuff was yeah. still there. That stuff was very good. Jim was Jim pretty much from the get-go. Jim was, like, the one character that I think you were – I think everybody was supposed to relate to Jim and Pam. And that's one thing that certain shows never had is that you've got to have a character that you can relate to. And you were able to relate to both of those characters almost from the get-go. And it makes sense because he was a salesman. He was a good salesman, but he was just a regular employee – and she was the lowest employee that she could have been in that office. And the whole purpose behind the office, and I don't know why I sent this to you, because after I sent it to you last night, I went back and read it, and then I remembered writing it. In 2011, as part of the end of a class I took in broadcasting, I did a presentation on the office, and I wrote a long, long article on it based on socialist carnival theory from Russia and Eastern Europe. And... All of it makes sense. I went back and read it, and I was just like, oh, the dialogue here is the most pretentious stuff in the world. I hate myself that I even composed this. And then I remembered, because I wanted to bring up this Bakhtin carnival theory and how Mardi Gras came about and how the reason that the office works is because of a subversion of hierarchy that's been in pop culture for hundreds and hundreds of years as like a sort of screw you to the authoritarian regimes. And so Mardi Gras would happen the week before Ash Wednesday and Lent, which were obviously times of 
increased focus and differences, Ash Wednesday and Lent were kind of a thumb to the nose of that. And they were also, they were allowed to do this in, in Eastern European countries because of the idea of let them eat cake and bread and circuses and all of those things. Like, let them go ahead and do their stupid things. We're still in control. But the idea of the subversion of hierarchy with the carnival is it's basically the people that are being mocked know they're being mocked and the people below don't care. And so you look at the office from that perspective and you can see it from the characters you relate to are lowly regular employees. The ones that actually seem to have lives you would want are lowly regular employees and the bumbling idiots as you move through are the executives. As soon as Ryan goes from being the intern early into his production, his company and all that ends up in jail. He goes to jail. Jan, as she's there, she's miserable her entire life, pretty much all the way through the show. When Michael Scott is more in control, nobody cares. Once he decides he wants to fall in love with Holly and that's all that he cares about, then you start to root for him. Then he starts to have things succeed. The lower employees were always I think more satisfactory and they even had to soften Dwight at some point during the run because early he was rigid, very, very rigid in a good way because Rain Wilson is beautiful at that part. But as it progressed along, they wanted you to root for Dwight. They needed to make you root for people. So in the end, what made Michael Scott, what Michael Scott was, was him becoming the everyman, was him becoming you on the way out the door. He went from, white-collar Vince McMahon, Donald Trump guy, to a guy that would be in this room talking about this podcast, making a regular living, wondering if he can afford to go to Starbucks today if he needs to go home. Like, there was a difference in attitude, and once the superiority goes down, that's the subversion of hierarchy that you see within the office because basically all they do is not work. All you see them do is find ways to get out of work at the expense of the company above them that seems to have no clue how to keep them under control. So you can look at the show as if Mardi Gras is happening at all times with the corporate structure above them and them just putting staplers in jello, basically. I feel like, to your point of Michael Scott's character in season one, and that's the thing I noticed is the change in hairstyle. I felt like what Huge. they were going for in those first six episodes is he's kind of a goofy, poor man's Gordon Gecko. Mm-hmm. And he has that edge about him. Same thing with Dwight Schrute. Uh, he he went from militant to militant slash tolerable the rest of the way. Yeah. And it wasn't just them. I mean, I think that it was it was a lot of them. I think Dwight, the militant guy, worked early because it was so dumb to watch. It was just like no one would behave this way. The health plan episode. Oh, yes, <laughs> yeah, yeah, they would. <laughs> Having worked in corporate environments like that, I, I can I can assign former coworkers and maybe some current co-workers, to every cast member of the office. And there is that guy, I think, in every office, especially the larger the corporation, the more these characters exist in that corporation. And that's, to me, is why I, every, everyone would, who works in that type of environment wants a Michael Scott as their boss because everyone in that corporate environment that's in management that I've ever dealt with, they're not the most qualified for the job. They're not the best for the job. They're the ones who have drunk the corporate Kool-Aid. They're the ones that buys into everything that corporation is doing and stands for. They're the cheerleaders. Well, that's not what Michael Scott is. Michael Scott hates HR. He hates Toby. He learns yeah, he true. comes to hate corporate. Like he, anything corporate tells him to do, he's going to do the exact opposite of. So that's why I think this appeals to so many people because everyone's like, I, 
I wish Michael Scott was my manager. <laughs> so he could eat a whole uh, Marie Callender's chicken pot pie and yeah. fall asleep, and then you can set the clocks forward and sneak out the door, right? But yes. the Michael Scott that wanted the ice cream cake from Baskin Robbins, despite the fact the cake was for the one person who <laughs> could not eat that, and his response was, well, she's not going to be the only one eating it, right? <laughs> That Michael Scott didn't exist later on in the show. That was the jerk Michael Scott that it, that needed to exist, I think, early. But when they softened him, it began to change. I just brought up this article. I just want to show what a insufferable human being I used to be because I actually wrote a let sentence me, Let me like say this, this before you start start reading that. After having read that entire thing. You didn't I, read that, I, did you? Yes, I read the entire thing. I felt both smarter and dumber at the same time. <laughs> I don't know what that even says about my writing. <laughs> well, I'm from Rutherford County. Me. I didn't understand half of it. So, <laughs> Well, this, this sentence says, While the program depends on its caricatures and overstated moments of satire and humor, the branch manager, that being Michael Scott, consistently behaves in an almost infantile way, almost often completely oblivious to the world around him while his subordinates engage in pranks, games, parties, situations of copulation. That's something and in general control every aspect of their workday outside of what little is required to obtain the weekly paycheck. And then again, I get into Bakhtin's theory and all that. I'm going to try to avoid it as much as possible. But when you look at just generalities about the show, it worked because everybody understands that environment. Even if they've, I've never really worked in a cubicle environment, but I understand what a cubicle environment would be like. It's the worst thing on earth. Yeah, you did do it, didn't you? Yes. Where did you do it? Uh, at a very large insurance company. Yeah, that's right, right, right. So you weren't selling paper. I was not selling paper. I <laughs> wish I would. I, there were days I wish I were selling paper. But you think about it, like, what's the most boring job you could possibly think of that's just straight up a rat race that you still have to, like, dress halfway decently? It's sitting in a cubicle selling paper. There's nothing more boring than Jim describing how he's got his big client Early on, the one that Dwight ends up taking from him, he takes the little champagne bottle out of his right. uh, little wine bottle and puts it on his desk. And just like him describing, well, now I'm going for recycled paper. That's a penny more. He's just like, yeah, I'm probably getting a little bit little bit haughty here, a little bit cocky. It's just like, this is the dullest job ever. There's nothing about that office that stands out in any way. It would be coma-inducing stuff. And so how do you make it fun? Well, you fill it full of real people that are turned way up. And like Kevin Malone, who from the get-go is quite hilarious to me and just continues to be so as you go through the series. And then you put in Stanley and you put in Phyllis, the basketball player. <laughs> and and of course, Oscar and, and everybody else, Angela Kinsey's character and Mindy Kaling and just so many you get every archetype that you could possibly want in one dull spot where the setting never is going to detract from anything. One of the brilliant things about the office that they made them not have even realized is they made sure that our focus was on the words being spoken because there was nothing else to look at. Mm -hmm. There were no bells and whistles behind the office. There was a cubicle. There were not a whole lot of colors. I mean, the streamers were even black when it was time for the, it is your birthday and, all of those things. Like it yeah, was dot never matrix printers. Yeah, all of that stuff. Like it was not, it was intentionally or unintentionally, but it works for me so much better. I'd never miss the dialogue in the office because I'm not looking behind the screen for some poster on the wall or all this stuff. There's never anything there. Mm -hmm. Ever. Like it's always in the foreground. Like 
world's best boss. I bought it myself. Like, it's right there in your face. He's holding it up. It's not sitting behind him on a table where you have to pick up on it. There's nothing there. Like, the office is right there in front of you at all times. So many shows, Vince Gilligan, I think, said that one of the things he learned early on in Breaking Bad was somebody came up to him after the pilot, after watching the pilot of Breaking Bad, and says, do you not have confidence in your show? And Vince didn't understand what that meant. And the guy was just like, why is there music playing underneath everything that you're doing? And Gilligan didn't understand. He's just like, if you're confident in your show, just put the dialogue in front of us. We don't need the music underneath. We don't need the bells and whistles. We don't need the smoke and mirrors of a Sting versus Triple H WrestleMania match, for example. We'll just pick up on the story, and it'll be more effective in silence than with a soundtrack underneath it. And so if you pay attention as Breaking Bad moves along, music is used, but almost never over dialogue. Because Vince basically said, no, I trust my script. I trust my characters. And if you look at this show, there wasn't anything else to trust because there was no smoke and mirrors. So you did have the cast that you needed. You had young talent that was very unexposed, I think. There were a lot of guys we just didn't know yet that have gone on to do good things. And then there was one guy we did know, and that was Steve Carell. And that was all we needed. Past that, I'll get to know John Krasinski. I'll get to know Rain Wilson. I will definitely get to know Jenna Fisher. I will get to know all of these characters, and I did. And so now I know all of them, and now all of them have names. And one of the large best things is I couldn't put together a soundtrack to put underneath us today because there is no soundtrack. There's the opening of that show, mm. and then for a long time there is a black screen with credits at the end of it that's in dead <laughs> silence. Yeah, and I think this is a good time too. And, and, and a lot of times when we look back on something with reverence the way we are the office – it's it's easy to look back in hindsight and say they got everyone cast in that show right. But I think this is a good time to take take a, a second to think about the people who were originally trying out for these different roles. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, Seth Rogen is Dwight. I just don't think so. Man. No, not at all. And in these, He's I too mean, goofy. there's a lot of great there's a lot of great actors and actresses on this list, but. I cannot look back and say any of these would have done a better job than the actual person who was cast. Bob Odenkirk is Michael Scott. That Love could, it. I think that would have worked. But uh, having, th- having watched his, his, his watched his his read of everything, I still don't. I still. I think he was good at it. It was still not Steve Carell. Bob Bob Odenkirk was such a great sketch comic with Mister Show and all the things that he and David Cross used to do and and coming up in that scene. Incredibly talented guy. I think he would have played it like it felt like a sketch comedy. And I, I think that Carell somehow, and I don't know how you slip through the eye of the needle and can simultaneously make it look improv and very professional yes. at the same time. And I think Odenkirk may have been a little over the top in a delivery that Steve Carell was more natural in. That said, Bob Odenkirk's done pretty well for himself. Yeah, he's, I, he's, I think he would have been the only other guy that probably could have pulled it off i, I think, think it's possible i don't know that it would have gone nine seasons or whatever but i i just think we would have a different version of michael scott uh we wouldn't know the steve carell part of it but i love bob odenkirk yeah. i just can't and pat knows walt is is dwight no i think pat knows Oswalt. i think pat Oswalt's a funny guy i can't picture anybody other than rain wilson i, can't, as dwight. I, cannot I really either. can't i cannot either and that's and that's the beauty and curse though uh, of his of Rain Wilson's existence. He's Dwight Schrute for the rest of his life. Yeah, he can't do anything else without it being Dwight else. is playing this rock star yes. in this movie. Right. And But it's like that for everyone for me, really, outside of Steve Carell and things that he's gone on to do. That's the new State Farm commercials with Oscar. Yeah. Not buying it. 
why would you go find one of the most recognizable actors of the last 20 years and cast him in that role as an insurance agent? Well, because he played an accountant, accountant for nine seasons. I don't know. Yeah, like maybe it was sort of on brand. Maybe it is Oscar, and we don't realize. You know the great thing about Jake from State Farm? Jake from State Farm was actually worked at State Farm. He was just a dude who worked at the corporate office. I didn't realize that's what was so great about that. Don't don't yeah don't give me an actor (laughs) that I know and present them to me as something else in a commercial. Krasinski's kind of pulled it off. Like I mean, he's you still see Jim, but I mean the Jack Ryan thing and A Quiet Place. Like he's kind of been able to yeah yeah thirteen hours of Benghazi film yeah yeah he's kind of broken free. But generally speaking, I mean a lot of these people just had their real names and they just were what they were. Mindy Kaling went on to do the Mindy Project. I never watched it. I heard it was good, but I heard it was also more for a female audience. And as much TV as I watch. I'm going to have to pass on some things in a Mindy project. I was never the biggest Mindy Kaling fan, but I've heard that that show is very good. I do think that Kelly Kapoor was a very good character yes. on The Office. There are some people that were on this show we've never seen again because it's just like, well, that's what they were. Like, I haven't seen Stanley do a whole lot of work. No. I haven't seen Phyllis do a whole lot of work. No. Yeah, uh, Brian Baumgartner's not floating around there everywhere either. Yeah, I haven't really seen Kevin do anything either. That's right. <laughs> um but, think, but that, like yeah. Creed, I would be perfectly, I would be perfectly fine if I was one of those guys just sitting back and watching the royalty checks roll in. Also love <laughs> absolutely. Creed, also love that Creed Bratton is his actual name. Yes, he's actually that's an actual person, and he actually was in the grassroots. And I actually believe that he probably acts like that. <laughs> I, he had some of the best lines that just stood alone in all their odd left or right field fashion. So when you go back to. The first time you watched this show, did it hit you immediately or did it have to grow on you? You watched it three years ago, so you were, you were going to go through it anyway. I watched it between season one and season two beginning. I bought the DVD with my roommates at the time during the summer because there was nothing else and we were sitting in a Walmart and I had 20 bucks. I guess I couldn't save. So I bought that <laughs> and we went home and watched it and I was just like, yeah, it's all right. And season two hit and then it was like, okay, now we got something here. And again, I think it was Michael Scott. I think the show became more fun. It just became more fun to watch than it was in the first season. But I, like I said, I watched the first season last night, and I enjoyed it despite it being closer to Curb Your Enthusiasm in terms of its level of awkwardness and some some jokes you simply couldn't do now. I, oh, there's plenty of those throughout <laughs> this thing in nine seasons. I, we, I think as a family, we started watching – while it was live on whatever night it came on on NBC in season midway through season three, so we, we uh, rid, uh, uh, immediately almost went and got seasons one and two because obviously it hadn't had enough episodes yet to be in syndication. Uh, but we and uh, you know my daughter would leave her bedroom, walk to the kitchen, see us watching. She'd stop and she's and next thing you know she's sitting down with us and and checking it out. But uh, so we watched the rest of it, you know, live throughout its. Uh, it, run and then got every dvd season you know all of it just because we were in all in and i'll say this if whoever's listening to this podcast who has not seen the office in its entirety that's ballsy play on your part to listen to this podcast if you haven't well, I think watched that, the but office no, i think there's True. a lot of people who love what you do jason and they're going to listen to the things that you do i think there's some people who are going to listen to this for the first time and be motivated to go watch the office don't watch it on comedy central 
Like no. each segment is like five minutes long, and it goes through commercial, and it's so disjointed. Yeah. It's on Get Netflix. Yourself a Nick's, Go Netflix do it. Account. Yeah. Watch it that way. That's the only way to watch it. Yeah, I agree. I, I just I don't watch stuff in syndication anymore, even if it's not available. Like I just can't. I don't know what's been cut out. Right. I don't know what. Yeah, there's I've a lot of things cut out when it's when it's on Comedy Central. <laughs> no. I'll say this, and this may be a poor correlation, but I feel like if you like Mike Judge's Office Space. You would like The Office. Yep, and that's my favorite comedy of all time. Office Space is. Uh, and yes, I agree. I think that there's a lot of similarities. And Mike Judge was never able to duplicate what he did in Office Space and anything he's done since. And he's done some good things since. Mm-hmm. Silicon Valley is awfully good. It's really close. It's not as good as Office Space was. Extract was a huge disappointment. I thought that... Why am I forgetting the name of the... What is the stupid thing about the future that Mike Judge did where everybody gets dumb because of consumerism? Um, oh, I know what you're talking about. I can't how in the world am I going to forget the name of this? I hear it. People mention it to me. Idiocracy. I couldn't stand Idiocracy. I watched it recently. I thought it was just brutally not good. I understood the point behind it, but Office Space worked. Office as a whole, worked for NBC at a time when they needed to do something different because we had seen so many of these multi-camera sitcom stuff where you see the couch in the shot all the time, whether it was Cosby or Cheers when you saw the bar in the place. Friends was a multi-camera comedy. All of a sudden, you get this mockumentary format, this documentary format that starts The Office, which changes the way the show is shot. And that's why it's so groundbreaking because so many other shows began to film differently as a result of the office's visual techniques. And it was a change television needed because everything else, when you go back and watch some of those sitcoms from the late eighties and nineties, friends holds up because the subject matter is kind of timeless in many respects. But a lot of those shows seem archaic now because of the office. Mainly it was the office that kind of ushered it in and taught other networks. Okay, we can do this. Okay. Something like modern family can now exist in a world where before it couldn't. Jason, don't you think for that reason, one of the, those reasons alone, that it makes it so much uh, more f- of a better fit for modern streaming television on-demand type services because of the way it was shot, the way it's done, and how you can just sample it and move forward? Yeah, there were two things about it that were groundbreaking. This wasn't the first show that did this. If you remember Aaron Sorkin's Sports Night that ran late in the 90s before he did The West Wing, early on that show had a laugh track. Like the first 10, 11 episodes, if you go back and watch it now, it has a laugh track. It seems so out of place for what that show was. And then at some point, they decided, you know what? We're going to bounce the laugh track. If The Office had a laugh track, I'd have never wa- I'd have watched it for about a year, and that would have been about all I could probably have taken. Mm-hmm. It would have ruined the effect. The jokes need to stand alone. Again. Just like Vince Gilligan not putting music under. We don't need to be told when to laugh. Chuck uh, Klosterman wrote an article about laugh tracks and how they're designed for idiots. They're designed to make you feel like, one, you're not isolated and lonely when you're laughing alone. And also, oh, okay, I can laugh at this. I'm supposed to laugh at this. Like you're going along with the crowd. No, you laugh at what's funny. You can laugh at whatever you find funny. I could spill the water in front of me on this table and Rhett might laugh out loud because he's a terrible person. And David might not because he's not a terrible person. But it's humor to him. Whatever's funny should just be funny to you. It doesn't always have to have a punchline. The Office had its punchlines, but it also had subtle things that would happen from time to time that I would find amusing 
just privately and that would be able to get out of that you can't get out of when you're waiting for the laugh track to tell you it's okay to laugh. Seinfeld's a show that I don't think needed a laugh track. I think it would have been better off in the later stages, especially without a laugh track. How I Met Your Mother came around after The Office or right around the same time as The Office. It had a laugh track, and I don't think it ever needed one. The Big Bang Theory still has a laugh track to this day as it's coming down the final stretches. Maybe it does because people wouldn't know to laugh watching The Big Bang Theory in some of these later seasons. I I don't know. All I know is that the fact that The Office treated its audience with the respect that, no, we're just going to present our product and you'll figure it out. I, I appreciate that. I try to do that in my work. Like, and I, I think the Midday 180 doesn't dumb down its content. I don't either. I treat people as if if they're listening to me, then they're going to be smart enough to know what's going on. And that doesn't mean they're smart because they're listening to me. It just means I'm not going to dumb it down for you. You're just going to have to you're going to have to pick it up from from where we are. I think that's showing respect to your audience, and I think the office always did that. It's difficult for me to go back, even shows that I grew up watching that I love so much. Go back if they have the laugh track. Like I love Family Ties. Yeah, but sometimes going back and watching that show, all I hear is the laugh track. Yeah, like, and you I only hear three you. different versions. Like you know what the laugh yes. is. Like you know that guy that's at the end of it going to go, <laughs> and it's only him, and you know his voice. <laughs> yeah, I now I don't like I focus on that nowadays because to me that's so foreign from what I've become accustomed to. And I never really thought, I mean, I love a good mockumentary. Like, I guess it started with me with Spinal Tap, but I'm sure Rhett is watching <laughs> oh, Christopher Guest, like than, all of the Christopher Guest yes. stuff, the Best in Show. Yes. And, oh, uh, gosh, that's Best so Best in good. Show was absolutely tremendous yes. for your consideration. Like, all the stuff that he did, Waiting for Guffman, uh, Christopher Guest was a master of it. And I think that Christopher Guest has a lot in common with your Stephen Merchants and your Ricky mm-hmm. Gervaises and... I'm speaking of Stephen Merchant, I'm still trying to figure out how Fighting for My Family is good, but apparently it's one of the best movies of the year. Yeah. But and Stephen Merchant was associated with it. Maybe I should have paid attention. But yeah, no, you're you're absolutely right. And Spinal Tap was revolutionary because it felt highbrow uh-huh. in the way that it it made you feel smart for watching it. Which, look, we all need our pride strokes apparently from time <laughs> to time. The Office never made you feel like an idiot for watching it, ever. You always felt like you were smarter than 90% of the characters on screen. Yeah. And it started with Michael Scott. Absolutely. And yeah. it needed to. Sure. You needed to think that you were smarter than your boss because in real life, you want to believe that you're smarter than your boss. Yeah. If you're working in a job like that, you and your colleagues are sitting around the water cooler saying, can you believe what this numbskull is asking us to do? Have you seen his office? Have you seen the way he handles himself? Have you seen the backseat of his car? Have you heard these bad jokes that he's telling? You need that. Because you need to be able to lampoon the person in front of you to make a mundane job like that tolerable. And so that's that's what it was. And Michael Scott needed to be the bumbling fool. And when they made that shift, it changed that. The first season, you get Ryan Howard shows up as a temp. B.J. Novak, who writes early episodes on the show, and you may not even realize it at that stage while you're watching it. Another character that I think evolves from being totally unlikable to at least tolerable, even though you're supposed to hate him from the get-go, is Roy. Because you want Jim and Pam immediately. Mm. They make sure that you want Jim and Pam. And then Roy is, you almost think Roy's abusive. Some of the ways that he talks to Pam and they've been engaged well, I think for in today's years. world he is abusive yeah but i mean not physically abusive no, but i but think he you could almost make it feel that way yeah he's like emotionally manipulative and all of these things 
they clearly wanted you to root for Jim and Pam, and then they were going to find a way to keep them apart for a little while, and they did. But to me, I I hated how awkward it was watching Jim try to get Pam when Pam couldn't be receptive to it at all when Roy was there. But then you would get the basketball game where every time Jim would score, she would grin just a little bit more. She fell asleep on him the worst day that they've had in that office to that point in time. And the episode ends, to me, very effectively with Jim just saying it was a pretty good day yeah, because he lost that account, but she fell asleep on him. And that's all that mattered to him. It's just like, okay, well, I know who this character is. We know who the Ross Rachel of this show is. We know who the major ship on this show is going to be. We know who to root for. And it happens to be the two characters we're supposed to relate to anyway. And so I think it, the first, the first thing you see in the show is Jim is, uh, is Pam and Michael Scott interacting, I believe at the desk where, and then I think that's, again, we're going to get to it. I think the show should have ended in the airport when Michael Scott took off his microphone, which is basically signaling the end of this documentary, which they've long stopped talking about, and then goes, walks off, off camera, down, and talks to Jenna Fisher. We can't hear that conversation. They embrace. It's like, okay, here's secretary and boss, lowest employee, receptionist and boss, who he treated like absolute garbage early in the series, from the very beginning, treated her like she was nothing to a moment where basically she had become his best friend and his confidant. That was, to me, the full reconciliation of what The Office was. It became a redemption story for Michael Scott. And I think that's why, to me, I still treasure it the way that I do. In other words, you didn't need Robert California. That's what you're telling No, me. I didn't. <laughs> I, di- I didn't need any other episodes of The Office after that, even though I think that the finale is one of the great comedy finales mm. of all time, after seasons that did not need to exist. But... Is there anything about season one that we haven't hit on here? Um, trying to think if there's anything like the else that stand. The whole thing is potentially a downsize. So there's going to be one of the branches going away. Right. And I think it plays into the idea of, is the office going to get downsized off the NBC lineup? Because the ratings were not impressive, nor were the critical impressions of this show impressive in the first season. So them on screen wondering about their own jobs you can start to think the people writing it and the people that were acting in it wondering whether or not they were going to have jobs yeah. about this show. It was uh, real life, in, uh, you know, taking the form of art. But I, it, to me, this show, not getting critical acclaim early on surprised me because to me it was so different that, that it seems like that's the type of thing that critics – probably were thirsting for and didn't know it so when presented to them i thought that they would have been all about it and to me that's a that's a lesson in giving things a shot giving things a chance and not just pulling the plug on something six episodes in when it isn't working yeah i'm surprised it only won one emmy for best comedy that is surprising I mean, it won it its share of to, awards. I mean, what was it losing to? It would lose the Modern Family some. It lost to, what else would it have lost to at that point? I've in never time? watched one episode of Modern Family. And by the way, just for your purposes of not seeing the BBC version, uh, the storylines aren't all exactly the same, but that's the same gist is that their company paper, uh, paper company, Wernham Hogg, mm-hmm. is going to be redundant, yes. made redundant. Right. So in 2006, it won for season two. Other nominees, Arrested Development, Curb Your Enthusiasm, Scrubs, and Two and a Half Men. 
In 07, 30 Rock started winning, and that was kind of the run. 30 Rock won in 07, it won in 08, it won in 09, then Modern Family won in 10, 11, 12, 13, and 14. And then Veep took over. Yeah. So there was a change, but there is a lot of The Office in Modern Family as well. I mean, it's not the same show, but there are some of the tenets of that show in there. Um the first season of The Office wasn't even nominated. Again, it was mixed. It was mixed reviews, and I, I guess I agree with you in that I don't know what else was there that I would have really said. Okay, well, this is clearly a better show than The Office is at this point. But going back, actually going back and watching it last night, I didn't think that it was quite as maybe tough to watch as maybe it was when I first saw it. Like now, I find it a lot funnier. Maybe because I'm a little bit older and have been more experienced since then. Maybe I'm more cynical in some ways now as well. Uh, I, I don't have a boss that's like Michael Scott that's domineering and overbearing, especially because he listens to podcasts. And needy. Yeah, exactly. And not so Michael Scott in all of this is just a guy that never got out of middle school, worried about whether people liked him or not. I just I think I've had the benefit of having not watched this until I've worked in that environment, until I'd spent time in a cubicle. So I think I have a much greater appreciation for this show and the comedy in it and the characters in it and the storylines in it than I would have have if I had been watching it when it was on live. Sure, that makes so sense. I, I think that I think I I stumbled upon upon it at the exact right time in my life. Yeah, no, I think that makes a, a ton of sense. Actually, uh, it was not as big in terms of the cast. Like when you look at the actual like DVD cover from the first from the first season, it was just Pam. Jim, Dwight, uh, Ryan, and Michael Scott. Felt like those were sort of the core characters. One thing I think that the show did pretty early is make you care about everybody else. Like, nobody would come on screen and you're like, oh, well, I've got to watch Angela. Like, it never happened. Like, eventually everybody in that office had a personality that was enough that it could stand alone when well, it needed to. We all needed a dose of Meredith Palmer, yeah. Creed Bratton, uh, Kevin Malone. I mean, all of those. We needed that. But there's no question that season two was as good as TV is going to get from a comedy perspective. When you start out with episode one, the Dundies? Yeah, the Dundies, yes. is, Dundies yes. is good stuff. How can I explain yes. it? Any 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 episode that uh, takes place in the Chili's. Uh, I think everyone <laughs> knows my fondness for Chili's. Uh, which, by the way, that wasn't an actual Chili's. In case you didn't know that, that's the way it works in Hollywood. They actually found a a restaurant that was closed at the time and retrofitted it to look exactly like a Chili's instead of wow. going to a, a Chili's to, to film in. It's where small business happens. So the ratings were down at the end of the first season, and people thought, okay, series finale. Hot Girl is the series finale. With Amy Adams. Yeah. Yes. And Selling those apropos, purses in the conference apropos, room. Apropos, apropos title. Um, <laughs> Dwight by a purse. <laughs> season two begins... And during that summer, before the show came back, a movie came out called The 40-Year-Old Virgin. And then Steve Carell became something far different than Steve Carell was at the beginning of the season. Now, we know he'd done The Daily Show, and he had done some things. 40-Year-Old Virgin took off in a way that I don't think that even they expected that it was going to when it came out. I remember going to see it at the theater with friends, not sure what to expect, laughing harder at that film than I had in many many years and then all of a sudden steve carell was a-list as a comedy actor oh he's starring in the office okay all right i'll start watching season two 
The Dundies was viewed by 9 million viewers. Hot Girl, 4.8. So wow. they doubled up an Four, audience. Almost doubled your audience. And I think the 40-year-old wow. virgin may have helped to save the office. Sure. 9 million? That. That's substantial coming off of 4.8 and mixed reviews from critics. Without a doubt. Uh, it's it's incredible, as a matter of fact. And then the season continues to move on. 12th episode seen by over 10 million viewers. 10.3. Casino night, by the time you get to the finale of that year, it had dropped. It was a 40-minute long episode with 7.6 million. So it still was not doing like gangbusters, but it was successful enough that it was going to get a longer rope. And there was there were a lot of shows that didn't get a long rope, especially we've seen that now. If your show doesn't have a good audience in the first three weeks now, it's done. TV executives will pull you off the air in a month now. There was a show called Lone Star that was on Fox that I actually thought had a chance to be really good. And the first two first two weeks of that show, ratings weren't good. You never heard from it again. I mean, they canned it after two episodes. They were done. Like, everybody that had been part of that show was finished off. So I can't even imagine being in TV now with over 560 scripted shows, new shows that aired last year. And trying not to get caught up in that. The same thing as like podcasting and having thousands and thousands of podcasts. And how is anybody going to see you if you don't have the right distribution platform? How long can you do this passion project before it, it doesn't become lucrative? And NBC had gone from must-see Thursday to, well, what are we finding? And what they ended up finding was, was it a quartet or was it just a trio? What they ended up getting was The Office, 30 Rock, Michael Schur, who helped create and adapt the office for the U.S. audience, moved on to create a show called Parks and Recreation, <laughs> which is my second favorite show oh, of I all time. Oh, I love that show. Uh, and then there was a fourth one that I am, for some reason, blanking on right now that was part of that quartet as well. And then you had Scrubs. And Scrubs was good, but Scrubs originally had a friend's lead-in, which kind of made it work. So the office kind of came around at a time when they needed something new. And then once it hit, there was nothing like it on TV. And once people started talking about it at the office, yeah, it took off. And then Jenna Fisher goes and does a movie. You go see it because Jenna Fisher's in it. John Krasinski. Oh, he's part. I like John Krasinski. I, I can watch something John Krasinski's doing. And then Steve Carell ends up becoming an Academy Award nominee for some of the things that he's done and shown just the Fox deal. Fox Catcher, yeah. Yeah, Fox Catcher, and, and I mean, he's done a number of different things. He and his wife, Nancy Walls, who was on Saturday Night Live for a time in the late 90s, both of them big-time sketch comics, and then they co-created a show that was on TBS a couple of years ago. But this show succeeds because Steve Carell was great. Like, this discussion begins with the Michael Scott character. Mm -hmm. Without Michael Scott, just like without David Brent, there is no office in UK. There is no office in the US. If you don't cast that right, the rest of it doesn't matter because the boss, the branch manager, had to be perfect. And it was. Steve Carell's as good as we've ever seen. Right. And really, so many of the relationships revolve around their relationship with Michael Scott. That's how we're introduced to him. And that's how we most oftentimes, as you said earlier, relate to them is that relationship that the people have with their superior who turns out to be an idiot but is kind of a lovable idiot again we always we worked for yeah well the lovable idiot not the one that donated 25 dollars to oscar's 
walkathon. Nephew yeah, or the walkathon. <laughs> Realized it was for the mile, and then you have that conversation where he's like, it's not about the money. It's about the principle of the thing. So no, it's about the money. It's definitely about the money. <laughs> but just like there were so many little things that worked for me. Like I would have been, I'd have thought a big surprise would have been ice cream sandwiches personally. You brought me an ice cream sandwich to the office and I was working at that job. I'd have thought that was a nice surprise. Considering the monotony of that day in, day out? Absolutely. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's big time on my like, meter. Stan was like, I hope this is not the big surprise because it's been a really <laughs> bad day. The best part about that to me is that he comes in with the bag. Michael Scott has these two plastic bags, and they just say service station on yes. it. <laughs> no one has ever been to a service station. They've been to some named thing. This was the most generic bag. They had to know when they did this, oh, this is going to look stupid. <laughs> and they still did it anyway. And then you notice how many of those ice cream sandwiches Michael Scott ate, sadly, in his office after everybody walked out. That was one of the more awkward things to watch early. That and the Chris Rock bit during the diversity day. <laughs> <laughs> that may, that, that's the top five episode for me, though. It's so, like, amazing that it even exists. Yeah. It could not exist today. Yeah, and it hadn't even been that long, but no way could that exist. Now, I mean, Larry Wilmore has gone on to do a short-lived show on Comedy Central following up The Daily Show, and now he's doing podcast work for The Ringer. But his character in that role, like with Michael Scott continually interrupting him and him basically saying, would be okay if I run this session, making him <laughs> sit down and everything. That The whole idea of just having them put those cards on their heads and try to talk to yes. each other was just and yeah, mr brown mr brown i will not call you that i love when he said that <laughs> that and then later on he goes mr brown puts in an air quote yes. because if that is his real name <laughs> 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 but the dundies the dundies is when you realize what this show is going to be and if you look at it it does a nine rating then it does a 7.13 then an 8.3 and it hovers in that eight range. It does a nine seven for the Christmas party episode later on that year. Then it does the ten three for the injury when Michael burns his foot on the foreman <laughs> grill. You mean cooked his foot? Uh, yes. <laughs> Another early thing I did not remember was did the carpet and the carpet match the oh, drapes. Todd Packer. Todd uh. Packer is a character I could not stand and i couldn't even stand the actor that played him because of how much i hated that character and yeah. you weren't supposed to and that I, exactly worked brilliantly right. but somehow hardy's all of a sudden believes it's a great great time to put todd packer on as yes their new commercial spokesperson rocking the old cul-de-sac i cannot again <laughs> don't take a character that i know from something else and present him to me in a commercial with something totally different i and can't buy it yeah he's the uh, He's the guy up early making biscuits. Yeah, yes. yeah, exactly. He's also Laney's father in the Goldbergs. So that's where he went on from the office. And, of course, he did some of those movies. It was like I always get him mixed up with John C. Riley because they're all just kind of tertiarily associated with Carell and Will Ferrell and sort of that crew. But the Todd Packer one, I've only watched it a couple of times. One thing that you get early on, is it in Diversity Day? It is. Toby. Like the first thing you ever see Toby do is he's like, are we all going to sit around Indian style? And he's like, get out. And then you immediately know, okay, there's a right. Like, Michael Scott doesn't like HR. To me, the Michael Scott versus Toby Flenderson just angle is one of the great recurring jokes on the show. Never did that not work for me. I love that. And I love sure. the fact that Paul Lieberstein was a writer and an executive producer the whole time. 
and created a character that basically did nothing of importance except be the fall guy for a lot of Michael Scott's comedy. Yeah, and I don't, I mean, the HR department in most companies, I think everyone has that feeling. You, nothing good ever comes from a trip to HR or HR coming to visit you. So, uh, again, it's one of those things that's so relatable, just, just the the – the tension between HR, like I, <laughs> I was thinking the other day, you know what would be great if we all went around and had our um, list of who at the radio station is this office character. And then I thought to myself, you know what, that would probably get me sent to the radio station's <laughs> Toby, and that would not be a good thing. What do you think when I say the name David Wallace? Again, I think someone who was perfectly cast for that. Um, someone who just the interaction with with him and and Michael over over the years just yeah. he understood everything that Michael was, and I think we've all worked in situations where some of the upper management knew that the people below them weren't exactly capable, but they didn't want to go through the headache of making any change. And that's kind of the relationship that I got between David Wallace and Michael Scott was they're producing. I know he's kind of an idiot and he doesn't do what he's supposed to do all the time, but as long as they're getting the numbers that they are supposed to, as long as they're hitting their sales goals, I don't want to go through the headache of having to make a change. Right. Again, something so relatable to so many people out there watching the show. Dwight Dwight and Michael Scott interactions early, where Dwight is assistant regional manager, assistant to the regional manager. Yes. Like a, no, the constant, never gets old. yeah, the constant joke. Him being put in charge of the health plan, cutting everything, saving the company money at the expense of no vision, no dental. And then I heard $1,500 deductible and kind of chuckle for a different reason. But moving on past that, <laughs> uh, just him having the sheet and saying just – You're about to go to Toby's office. Yeah, just raise your hand if you have this. <laughs> so what about confidentiality? You surrendered that right, right. when you made up things and it gets to anal fissures. <laughs> Someone has it. <laughs> the Kevin Malone moment. And Meredith and her uh, inverted uh, – Man part. Female part. Which is like, would that go for, I'll just say female part here, because I don't have an E next to my podcast name, so I don't want the explicit tag added to what we're doing here. Anything in season two stand out in terms of episodes that you just absolutely loved, or is it all of them? I mean, I know it's all of them, but there are some that that I know really, really hit hard for me. I mean, the Dundies is great. Casino Night is great. You had the, the constant, is Jim and Pam going to happen yet? Yeah. They wanted to drag you along for that ride as long as possible, and I think they ended season two on a note where you felt sorry for Jim because well, it wasn't it just wasn't quite time yet. He's poured his heart out to Pam, and he's in tears. Right? Yeah. And you know she's in the wrong situation, and she does. She you just know won't it from say the it. first time you see Roy that no, you don't want this guy in her life because yeah. you actually like her. And again, such a relatable part to so many people's lives because I think we've all been in a relationship where we've we've met the right person at the wrong time and we've all had that conflict in our heads about 
the vulnerability of putting yourself out there the way that Jim did. And I, for so long, that was my biggest fear of pursuing a relationship is putting yourself out there and open yourself up to be rejected. And there were so many hits along the way that we thought that maybe once he finally opened up to Pam, that she was going to, to, to say, you know what? You're right. I don't need to be with Roy. We need to be together. But when that didn't happen, like that's, that opened up all those feelings that I had of relationships that I could have had or did have over the years. And that, that to me made Jim that more relatable. He was me in that instance, because I could go back to moments in my life where nearly the same exact thing had happened. Yeah. And now you feel great that it never right. did. And then you, but you also, you feel bad, you feel bad. At least I did that. I was cheering for Jim trying to steal this man's girl away from him because then again i've also had that happen in my life you know i've been in a relationship with someone and someone else comes along and steals them right right, right from under you and you're like i I would never be that guy but here i am cheering for that guy because i know that that pam and roy are not meant to be together i think you also know in your heart of hearts they're not going to be together yeah. And so you're waiting because you know that you're eventually going to get to this place. And that's sort of the give and take that comes with TV. You know how certain things are going to end nine times out of 10. And so the question is, how much patience do you have with them? And the the success and or failure of a series in your eyes is how adeptly the people writing it make you interested around the stuff that drives you insane yeah. because they can't tell it. And it's the same thing as like Spider-Man never telling who he is. Or Bruce Wayne never unveiling himself and you having to continually read story after story where it's like, just tell her. Or just tell <laughs> yeah. her. And but you they can't have to sow it. those seeds. Yes, and you just simply cannot do it. And that, the Jim and Pam thing early made total sense because the obstacles, we talked a lot over the last month when we talked about friends about the, uh, the roadblocks that were put in the way of various relationships on that show. Roy was a big roadblock and then the branches and everything else sort of playing more into it. And then, then they found other ways to, to do it. I thought they handled Jim and Pam, right? The problem is we'll get into, and when we get into some of the other episodes later on in our podcast series is I think they made it irritating with some of the other relationships on the show. And I didn't buy into those roadblocks and I saw through the creativity and was just like, you're just making me mad now. Mm -hmm. You're making me not want to see these characters at all. That was never the way it was with Jim and Pam because we were Jim and Pam. Like, I don't think anybody was Ed Helms. But in the later episodes, they started to reveal a little more of their idiosyncrasies. Yes. That you you still love Jim and Pam, but you're like, you know, when, Jim, when Pam gets pregnant, there's a lots of things that we'll discuss in these other episodes that you're like, okay, they, it just shows how human they are. Yeah, and it also shows that their story was kind of done. The story that we wanted to see was them getting together and getting married. Once they got married, what was left? Well, they were going to have a kid, but once kids get involved in a TV show, it changes because the jokes become too obvious about the kid, and they rely too much on the kid like relying on a crutch. It's like taking a bunch of phone callers on a radio show. So is that because you don't have anything to talk about, or is that because the callers are are an important part of the show? And I think that there is a delicate balance to walk between those two things. And some shows do rely on nothing but phone calls. They just take call after call after call after call. And some of them become famous. I mean, Paul Feinbaum's made a really good career. I was going to say, enough about Paul Feinbaum. <laughs> yeah, he's, he's, he's done a great job. Who's for, made more money off idiots calling his show. Jason, for me in season two, I've got about a half a dozen different okay. episodes that great. I really, really like. 
two of which we've mentioned multiple times in the Dundies and Casino. I love those. I also really enjoy the fire because B.J. <laughs> Novak, uh, you know, the 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 temp um, yeah. and Ryan Howard forgets and, and leaves his pita in the the toaster and sets off the you know the smoke alarms and all that stuff. It, that's great in and of itself. The games that they're playing while they're waiting for the building to be cleared that's out awesome. on the front parking lot. Uh, I love the client when they go to Chili's again uh, with that's Tim Meadows trying to get the big account of the Lackawanna County uh, school systems mm-hmm. and. Uh, uh, that's where he tells uh, you know Jan that Chili's is where small business is done. It's been Small Business Magazine. It's going to be in there because he wrote the editor or whatever. There's all kinds of great things in that. I love the booze cruise on Lake Wall and Palm Pack in in January, and it just you know Rob Riggle's part as Captain Jack in that. And there's all kinds of great great scenes in there, like Michael's interpretive dance to try to uh, correlate to sales and. Uh, profit centers and those kinds of things and then michael's birthday which is just it it shows you still from season one there's a glimpse of what an ass that michael can be because he's so self-absorbed about his birthday while kevin malone is waiting to hear whether he has melanoma or not and he's he's just nervous as heck and everybody's trying to console him and and michael's just like why is no one paying attention to me on my birthday but the reaction of Michael at the the on the ice when Kevin is getting the phone call and he comes skating up and stops right up next to him and and he doesn't understand that negative is a good thing. Yeah. And, it's just like and he that, made a paper live strong yes, bracelet. Yes. <laughs> so many small things on this show oh. that you look back on and they're so. Those are the things, along with the big moments that uh, that I think about all the time and. Something that will happen. There's, there's usually not a day that goes by that the, an office reference isn't made at my house. Same here. Well, that's there's nothing wrong with that. You make a lot worse references. I've got a few quotes here. Toby is in HR, which technically means he works for corporate, so he's not really a part of our family. <laughs> also, he's divorced, so he's really not a part of his family. <laughs> Great Michael Scott anti-Toby yes. line right there. Uh, Dwight, actually, I do own property. My grandfather left me a 60-acre working beet farm. I run it with my cousin Moe's. We sell beets to the local stores and restaurants. It's a nice little farm. Sometimes teenagers use it for sex. Yes, yes. <laughs> Just like how dry Rain Wilson can deliver basically anything. Uh, another Dwight line, I hope the war goes on forever and Ryan gets drafted. Just absolutely no chill in Dwight Schrute early on. And the earth tones Yes. that he wears, the ties that match like brown short sleeve dress shirts spicy mustard ties oh it's dreadful and it just it, it keeps up but it fits that character even those glasses when i go back and look at dwight's glasses i was watching that last night paying even closer attention to it like those are the worst they are the worst they make his they make his eyes look like they're too close together and a head rain wilson's head's like the size of this studio <laughs> like cassava melon resting on his neck. Top to bottom, he's your dad in 1979. (laughs) I mean, that's what he is. Yes. Who wears short sleeve dress shirts? Uh, Ag teachers. Your dad with his Sansa belt slacks. There's nothing wrong with a Sansa belt slack. (laughs) There's nothing wrong with those things at all. So the end of season two is the casino night episode. And we end again kind of in a negative spot. Like you have to end in a cliffhanger and you have to make people want to come back for season three. So as we get towards like the tail end of our of our opening here, how are you feeling about the story 
at this point in time because you're so invested in Jim and Pam and you realize, well, that's going to take longer than we thought. In season three, which we'll get to next week, we know we're about to introduce a new setting and some new characters. One is going to stick with us all the way through the rest of the show, basically. Another that's going to be played by an actress that is eventually going to move on to Parks and Rec and play a large role in that show. But how are you feeling about the story as it's, we know where it starts. This show was not nearly as plot-driven. It didn't appear, and then it became increasingly, you care about these characters. These are not like standalone office situations, again, that Bob Odenkirk would be perfect to play that don't have any relation to one another but just have the same characters in them. This became a congruent story where you cared about a multitude of characters because of their interrelations with one another. So where are you at the end of season two? I, I I think I'm right where I'm supposed to be, that I still have that feeling that Jim and Pam are going to be together, but that relationship is going to be much more complicated than I I had hoped for at that point. Yeah, no, I think that that's true. And we also know that not only is it going to be complicated, it's probably going to be hard to watch. Yes. Because sure. the office makes sure that you know going in long before Scott's Tots happens. That oh. there are going to be a lot of episodes yeah, we'll that, are, into that, one later. that are yeah that are going to be real, <laughs> real difficult. Well, for me, I'm invested completely at the end of season two and rooting like heck for uh, for Jim and Pam to become a couple. Um, what do you feel about Michael and Jan? Oh, you know it's headed for disaster. You know, it yeah, is. you knew that was not. And boy, last. is it fun! It is. Miller Harden is very underrated in that performance and their relationship and we'll get into this in these later episodes that's one of their relationship revolves around one of my all-time favorite episodes of the office the dinner party i think yeah that's that's where my mind immediately went to but there for everything we look at and see in jim and pam and how they belong together the relationship between jan and michael we look at and say these two do not belong together so when when we know that they're heading down that road, we just know it's going to be a beautiful disaster. Yeah. And we've got a front row seat. Yes. Yeah. And Dwight and Angela, you've seen just enough to – I don't know if anybody thought that was going to actually be anything. Maybe they didn't even know at the time that that was going to turn out to be anything. That was probably – the watching it blindly, that was probably one of the biggest surprises. Mm-hmm. Uh, the fact that, that anyone would be in a relationship with Angela. And I would think you're right. I wouldn't think even the writers at that point knew how that thing right. was going to end because it was such an odd relationship and, you know, just the circumstances around it. But I, I'm interested to get your opinion on this, Jason, about the end of season two with Casino Night and how it's left with Jim and Pam. Is this in some smaller 2006 way their who shot J.R. Ewing moment, mm. cliffhanger, <sighs> to build towards some really good seasons of The Office? Maybe so. The seasons three, four, five are really good. Oh, yeah. No, I, I agree. I mean, they were two through five are the, are the key seasons of the show. Two, three, and four in particular really stand out. I think maybe so just because this show didn't rely on as many heavy moments. So this was the one cliffhanger moment because mm-hmm. every other heavy moment that the office generally faced, and maybe I'll end up turning out to be wrong as I go back through the seasons, but most of them were wrapped up at the end of the year. Like usually you were going to have a new start and maybe something was going to change, but you weren't left real unhappy at any point. Like Michael and Holly, when that happened, it did not happen in between seasons. To me, that still stands, and we won't talk about it in detail now because I'll talk about it for an hour when we get to it. That episode where he's in the room with the candles at mm-hmm. the end of the episode, 
maybe my favorite episode of a comedy show ever. Oh, it was fantastic. And it's because of the emotional depth mm-hmm. that comes in and how much you're rooting for both of those individuals by the time that that moment comes. And The Office wasn't a show that usually traded in that kind of stuff. It was something where Jim was tying a shoe and not proposing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> during the fun run. Yeah, I guess what I was asking by that is it, it was almost their homage, their old tip of the cap to the way television shows used to be produced yeah. with a, a season-ending cliffhanger sure. in, in May sweeps, and you had to wait to the fall to see what happened. Yeah, and I think it's the closest thing because, like I said, The Office just wasn't a cliffhanger kind of show. There were many shows that still do the cliffhangers. The thing that you know about TV is the next to last episode is going to be the hardest one to watch where somebody's going to die and where the highest tension is going to be for the people you like because the finale needs something to soften the blow. The finale needs to be able to give you some level of redemption and relief and then it needs to knock you on your keister at the very end with something you're not expecting. That's generally how like Shonda Rhimes handled Scandal or handled all these things. Like You'd get to the end, they would give you a result. 24 is the best example of this, I think. Sure. Penultimate episode of 24, Nina was a terrorist, and we didn't know it. For example, just off the first season, and Jack's wife's going to get killed, and things like that are about to happen, and or Jack's about to go to jail, or Jack's being tortured, or Jack's being tortured, or in another season, Jack's being tortured, or in a third <laughs> season, Jack's being tortured. Like Those things happen. Then you get to the finale, and Jack saves the day, and then ends up being captured by the Chinese in the last five minutes of the season and drifted off into a boat. And the last thing you see is that as the clock ticks, it never ends happy because if it ends too happy, why am I coming back? So the office was not really like that many times. It would just, the season would end with, there's some unanswered questions here, but not a high end cliffhanger. This was the one thing everyone was invested in. So it's the one thing they had to make sure that they pulled their audience back in. They had been growing they needed to grow more because this show's numbers were not like Frasier and Friends and the stuff that NBC was used to. So they needed something, and this is the one thing that they had, and I think that they did pull this trigger at the right way to make you want to come back to see the start of Season 3 to see how it, how they played it out, even though they didn't give you the answer for a long time after that, really, because they just dragged you right along and kept you going because there weren't nearly as many other things to keep you invested from a depth perspective. It relied much more on its individual humor. But one thing you can say about The Office is it kind of came into its own as Season 2 began. It took Parks and Rec about seven episodes into Season 2 to make it switch, because it was a totally different show in the first season in the early stage of Season 2 in a similar way. They made one character change and got Paul Schneider out of there because he just did not fit and then the show came became about Tom Haverford and Ron Swanson and the Leslie Note character became much more relatable and then came Rob Lowe and, and Adam Scott and then we're off to the races. Chris Traeger, and yes. It, yes, and then you have just and – and the same reason that like Roy was so unlikable at the start of The Office. Chris Pratt was incredibly annoying early in Parks and Rec when he was living in the pit outside of Rashida Jones' house and just a mess of a person. You hated him. Andy Dwyer, by the end of Parks and Rec, one of the most likable, affable, rootable, just everything, he just smiled at all times. When he got together with April, they were happily ever after, and you just saw them enjoying life. The Office, the one thing that I think that it missed, and it will increasingly become a problem, as we talk into next week, we will be into this discussion. 
is that they did not leave people happy. They had to make it awkward. They had to screw with you. They had to keep those twists coming in these characters so you could never feel quite comfortable. And to me, they ruined some of the characters on this show that could have been just left alone. And Jim and Pam, because they waited so long to put them together, at least they sort of left them alone once they put them together. They still had some arguments, and then they had the things that happened to married couples, but it was never, it never felt too obnoxious. It just felt like, okay, this, this deal is closed. So you had that in season two, and I do think that they masterfully handled the end of the year to leave you wanting and to leave you going into work the, the next day, talking to everybody else that saw it and saying, man, I wish we could have seen what was going to happen there. Mm-hmm. And them not giving it to you is why people came for the start of season three. Yeah, and you have to you have to think if you were watching it live though you knew at that when that episode ended that okay we we at least have another season of this show because you're not you can't just come back with one or two episodes and wrap that entire thing up for the way that you'd built up that relationship between the two and the way that season two ended. Well, you realize too they sowed those seeds of Pam and Roy. And then the whole gym dynamic to it throughout because it was mentioned. Oh, very early. You know, on. It, it, that in season one for sure, but in the Dundies, it was talked about that she was going to get the Dundee for the longest engagement yes. again, and how yeah. you know yeah. funny that was going to be. Um, to I don't know, I can't remember what the other one. Oh, on the booze cruise when he, yeah. uh, you know, right. they started doing shots and he was feeling he had liquid courage. Roy yep. did, and Captain Jack talked him into uh, ramping up there actual wedding date after yeah. being engaged for so long so and that's you know subsequently when jim broke up with amy adams on the on the boat there but uh it's all throughout there for it to kind of crescendo at that point at the end of season two it just needs something of emotional resonance to make you want to come back more than just this show's funny because there's way too many shows out there that are just funny and you mentioned off the top right that it's something you could always have in the background and one of the things that I have talked about and and kind of created was this theory of the red and blue show. And I've mentioned it before, and I, I said that Friends is definitely a blue show. The Office kind of straddles the fence to me, depending on the episode and depending on my mood. But a red show, I define it as a show I've got to pay attention to and a show that might affect my actual mood if I watch it. If I'm in a bad mood, maybe I don't want to watch Mad Men or The Wire or The Sopranos or House of Cards or any of those kinds of shows because... There's just something about them. I I use the color red to indicate a stop sign, like, whoa, I can't have this on the background. I, I have to sit here and pay attention or I'm going to miss something. Or it's just it's something that, that, that demands more of me. And then there's the blue show, which just for some reason just feels cool to me. And that's something I can have on in the background while I'm cooking dinner or while I'm cleaning something or while I am printing something for work or putting together a show. And that's usually some kind of a comedy. And to me, I think Parks and Rec is a much more blue show than The Office is because Parks and Rec was nowhere near as awkward as The Office. I think it was the awkward nature of The Office and the fact that at times all of these characters were portrayed in a way where you just did not like them. That makes it a little harder to watch than some of the pure blue shows. So I wonder if if anybody else feels the same way where I still kind of have to be in the right mood to watch The Office, where there are other things, the burn notices of the world, the white collars of the world, the certainly the friends of the world, the parks and recs of the world, where I know the ES, some of those 30 for 30s that I really like that are more lighthearted. Like I can watch those things at any time. 
a last week tonight, like 15 minute monologue or something like that, that I can always watch and laugh at. Whereas the office, I still feel like I have to think and I have to think through, wait, these characters are going to be redeemed in the end. The office had its, had its darkness. I think maybe more darkness than you think. And when you go back and watch it now with the benefit of hindsight, knowing how it's going to end, it was tough to watch that show week to week at times when you were, especially during the Jim and Pam prelims before you got there. And Dave, you didn't have that experience, which is great. Yep. So I think that's why I view it totally different. Like this is something that having the hindsight and being able to watch this all at one time, I didn't have to stop at the end of season two to know what was going to happen in the next season. So I can watch this show at any time, any time of the day, any time of the year, any mood that I'm in. This is really, and honestly, this is when I'm stressed out and just want to not think about anything, I go to the office because I can skip past those awkward moments. (laughs) I can end on a good note, depending on where I decide to end for that, that particular night. Sometimes, though, I do feel judged by Netflix because it'll run so long it'll ask me, are you still watching The Office? I hate, oh, I hate yes, that. It's 2019, and I'm still watching The Office. No, I just hate get that because I wanted to stay on all night and wake up and it right. still be on. I hate that it's just like, are you still watching? Did I tell you to turn off? <laughs> and typically it's about about after, what, four or five episodes, something like that? I don't know. Uh, it's, you just uh, have it's, to touch the remote, and it won't do it. But, like, if I'm sitting there you know, hanging out with my girlfriend or something, and we're on the couch watching these things, and all of a sudden that comes up. It's the most just inopportune thing in the world. It's just yes. like, I don't need to have to pick like up their the their version of sleep yes. mode or something. Yeah, yeah. I, don't, I don't need your sleep mode, Netflix. Yeah, Netflix. I'm still watching Forensic Files. Leave me alone. <laughs> <laughs> it does kind of make you feel self-conscious <laughs> yes. the way it asks you. Are you still watching? Look, I know this is from 2001. Watch, watch your tone, Netflix. <laughs> so first two seasons, who's the unsung hero? If Michael Scott is the hero, and let's just exclude, let's exclude him, let's exclude Dwight, let's exclude Jim, and maybe exclude Pam as well. Who's the secondary character you're enjoying the most in these first two seasons? Oh, that's a good question. Yes, it is. That's why I knew it was going to bring uh, silence for a couple of seconds. That's <laughs> the way you end a podcast. Well, I'll say, I'll say this in. It, it, through the first two seasons, I didn't think Kevin was going to play a big of a role moving forward because that first season, like he, you talk about being tertiary. Like I can't remember a really that significant of a moment for Kevin. Uh, but Kevin, Kevin, and I just think about the moments that Kevin would go on to have, and I can't think of the show without a Kevin in it. Sure. And to me, that's got to be, I mean, that's MVP caliber, right? Yeah, for sure. I'm, I think at this point, I'm steadily getting into and watching Kelly Kapoor, Mindy Kaling. Mm. Um, it, she perfectly channels a 12, 13-year-old girl in this thing. Crazy perfectly. ex-girlfriend. Oh, yeah. yeah. And then, the, yeah, the back and forth with Ryan Howard. And uh, that's some really good stuff there. Um but yeah, I, I really, I watch her in this. I think that's the other thing too. And going back to watch episodes, focusing on a different character just to see their development, where you were so drawn in on the the Pam and Jim and the Dwight's and the Michaels of the world. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I think you could go with either one of those. I think you could go with Stanley. Um, I, 
I'm looking forward to Daryl Philbin becoming a bigger role, bigger oh, characters. Yes. I love Craig Robinson so much on this show. Um, I might go with Jan just because I feel like she had so much to do with what was happening. Yeah. And she was able to play straight person amidst all this nuts. And she crap was a smoker. <laughs> yes. She'd light up a Marlboro red. <laughs> yeah. Like I just, for some reason, I just, I thought Melora Hardin didn't get enough credit because her character was really designed to change Michael Scott around and move him into various places. For some reason, I just felt like her character was really important, especially early on to the development of Michael Scott. And this show ultimately rose and fall on the development of Michael Scott. And as he became more the guy that we would see later on, he had to go through these growing pains first. So Mm -hmm. she had to be the awkward one that had to play it straight and be almost rigid as a character, uh, almost frigid, like an ice queen in many respects. Yeah, so we you're could, saying, we couldn't have had Mike and Holly without first Correct. having Jan on the, in the picture. So you're Correct. saying the trip to Sandals, Jamaica changed everything. Yes. Changed everything. That's not where my honeymoon is going to be. <laughs> That's all I'm going to say about no, that. You should go and recreate that photo. All inclusive. <laughs> it's all inclusive, he'd say. We're not going to Sandals. So how do we, how do we polish this first episode off? What is what is it that we need to say about these first two seasons that has not been said yet? I think one of the greatest foundations for a show in my lifetime is the first two years the of the office. First two seasons of the office, yes. You feel like the first season gets a bad rap? I do, but that's me having watched it so fast. So fast. You watched it in two yes. hours. Yeah. I mean, I can I can move through that first season, and I'm into the second season, and the first season, you know, is, is making more sense to me, and I'm seeing the development in the characters and how their lives are changing and how they're being presented now as opposed to in the first two or three episodes. First season, bad rap, Rhett? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And, and But to your points earlier in this podcast, um, you know, the change in Michael Scott, whether it was 40-year-old virgin or tweaking the character, going away from what I call the cheap – uh, goofy Gordon Gecko to the more lovable Michael Scott uh, in season two and beyond. Uh, you know it, but yeah, absolutely, it gets a bad rap. Uh, if you if you love The Office, you're gonna watch season one. It might not be your favorite, but you're gonna see it because you got to see that base foundation, like mm-hmm. you said, David. So next week we're gonna hit three, four, and five, and they are going to be a lot of fun. And we're going to go into detail on a lot more of these episodes. The first episode of this cast is always the one where you have to introduce and talk about a lot of the background and the characters and who played who. And there'll be more of those trivia tidbits and things like that. Maybe even some homework for you guys to do along the way also. And we will probably do what we ended up doing with the Friends deal is I'll think of stuff and we'll think of stuff that we didn't hit. And we'll start next week by talking about season two in a little bit greater detail. But Three, four, and five, if you haven't watched them in a while and you're listening to this podcast with us and you have already watched the show, go ahead and watch some of that stuff over the next week before you come back and join us uh, next Friday or next Thursday when we drop this next cast because, one, you're not going to find much better to do than watch those seasons. You will laugh yourself dumb, and I'm lucky right now because my girlfriend has never really watched The Office, and so she's going through it, a lot of it, for the very first time. And I've already seen it, and I'm doing these podcasts. So she's getting to – I feel envious for her or envious of her that she's getting to go through that experience the way she's going to get to go through it 
fast because three, four, and five when you binge through them is just great television. Yep. Truly is. And, guys, this is fun. This is what we want to do. So, it's, I can't wait for these next parts, and this one was a great way to get started. All right, guys. That's that is <laughs> That's how you end it, folks. There we go. Rep Brian, David Reed. I am uh, Jason Martin. This is a Pop 6. Follow the station at 104.5 Zone. Follow me at Zone. Thank you guys for, for everything. We'll see you next week. Stir the melting pot, bam. Let's do it. Let's get ugly. Let's get real. Okay. If I have to do this, based on stereotypes that are totally untrue, that I do not agree with, you would maybe not be a very good driver. Oh, man, am I a woman?